today india and china eliminate more girls uh, than the number of girls born in america every year the definition of a genocide is a systematic and methodical extermination of a certain group and the genocide is that systematic and methodical extermination of a gender group why are indian households secretly and brutally eliminating daughters from their family system they just wet the cloth and they fold it like this and they put it on the face so the child can't breathe immediately the child will die but what this is is an entire system a social machinery that says we don't want females but the real problem started after i became pregnant they started asking me for a sex determination they wanted to know if the children are girls or boys they started torturing me to get an abortion done what should i do to save my daughters You are listening to Currents, a podcast of Big Ocean Women. My name is Dana Robb, and I will be today's host. The Currents podcast aims to gather women who are deliberate thinkers, women who are prepared to engage as powerful forces for good in their homes, their communities, and the world. Each season, we host a special podcast that focuses on a discussion about a book or movie and how it relates to one or more of our Big Ocean tenants. We open today's episode listening to a selection from the trailer of It's a Girl documentary, which follows the cultural challenges of the heavy topic of female infanticide and female feticide. It's not a pleasant topic, but we are thrilled to have Jill McElyer, founder of Invisible Girl Project, join us in this discussion and show us that there is hope. Change is happening. And while it may break your heart to become more aware of the challenges girls face in India, China, and other countries... We hope it will inspire you to become a part of the change. Well, I'm so excited to introduce our guests for today's podcast. We have Jill McElyay with us from Invisible Girl Project. Welcome, Jill. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me today, Dana. Yeah, I met Jill for the first time in 2018 at the United Nations Commission on the Status of Women. I attended her event there where she was bringing to light the work that she was doing to help empower women and girls in India. And it's, it's kind of a heavy subject as I was listening to the conversation and becoming informed about the, the extent of it all. It was heavy, but I remember just feeling so much light and hope coming from Jill that I was inspired. I, I knew this was an organization that I wanted to promote and share with the world. So here we are three years later. I'm so excited to have you with us. I am so grateful for this opportunity and it's good to see you again and um, talk to you again. I think this, you're right, Dana, this is a really heavy subject. And I think for people in the Western world, it's easy to really shut out the realities of the subject because it's remote to us in many Mm -hmm. ways. But I think we have an opportunity as women 
to really champion our sisters on the other side of the globe by learning more about this, by raising awareness, just like what you're doing right now. Mm -hmm. And to, to be able to take that step up and help save girls' lives. Exactly. That I feel like that's one of our responsibilities. One of the reasons that I want to share this documentary that we're going to be talking about and have this conversation with you is because kind of what you're saying that in westernized cultures, it's easy to get caught up in the abortion debate specifically and those lines drawn between pro-life and pro-choice. But the more I become aware of what's happening in the rest of the world, I realize it isn't about choice at all. Because for the majority of women who are faced with abortion, they're not given the choice. It has nothing to do with choice. It's being forced upon them. Is that right? That's so correct. So female gender side is the systematic killing of girls just because they're female. And we see this played out. Invisible Girl Projects focuses specifically on India because India has 1.3 billion people. And there's a lot of work Mm -hmm. to do there. So we Mm -hmm. have to be narrow in our focus if we're going to have any impact. There are other organizations who are working to fight this issue in China. Uh, And so we focus on India. So I can tell you specifically about India. And the fact of the matter is, is that there is a sun preference. And so we see this played out through female feticide is what it's called, what you mentioned, and Mm -hmm. that's sex-selective abortion. Mm -hmm. And that is the greatest, really, they believe that there's anywhere between 700,000 and mm. 2 million baby girls who are aborted annually in India just Every because year. they're female, just because wow. they're female. And what we have found in our work in fighting female gender side in India mm-hmm. and saving girls' lives to fight female gender side is that we see so many mothers who don't have a choice at all. They are so pressured to give birth to a son. So they're really not given what we as Westerners focus on is about choice. Mm-hmm. Women in, for women in India, this is often not about choice at all. They're forced quite often to abort their daughters mm-hmm. because they're girls, just yeah. because they're girls. Yeah. So this documentary, it's a girl. When you shared that with me, you, you, you kind of use the tagline, the three most dangerous words. Mm-hmm. Tell us, tell us why girls are not preferred. Why are they aborted so easily? There are so many reasons why girls are considered a liability. They're not considered a blessing. If you have a boy in Indian culture, and, and of course this is not for hundred percent of the culture by any means, but we do see that this is really pervasive. It's prevalent. It's just systematic and, and, frankly, quite ingrained for centuries in India. And in, in every problem. like level, right? Not just for those in poverty, but those in every level of society, right? That's right. That's right. You see that there is a discrimination against girls and mm-hmm. a son preference. In fact, I was speaking at Emory University a few years ago that I was invited by an Indian student group. And so I was speaking at Emory and afterwards I had a young woman come up to me student, she was a senior at Emory, she was crying and she just had tears coming down her face. Beautiful young woman, so captivating, really, really smart. She said, I'm from Mumbai. She said, uh, this happens no matter whether you're poor or wealthy. She said, I know that someday people will ask my family and and part of the reason we'll get into more is is dowry. People will ask Mm -hmm. my family for dowry for me to marry their son. And she said, and I see my best friends who go to UCLA from Mumbai. So the family's very wealthy and could afford Mm -hmm. to send their daughters to UCLA. She said, my best friends are twins, twin girls. 
they've never met their grandmother their whole life because she doesn't want anything to do with them just mm. because they're girls. And so you do, you see it amongst the poor, you see it amongst the wealthy, that there is this real son preference. People want to have sons because in, in the culture, sons bring blessings. They uh, are expected to, when they get married, provide a dowry because the girl's family provides a dowry, which is money or gold, or if you're wealthy, this young woman, Emery told me that, you know, her family might be expected to give a Mercedes to her groom. Or if you're poor and you have nothing and you live on like a dollar a day, like, can you imagine trying to save that money so that you marry off your daughter because of dowry? And then in addition, sons are preferred because there really is no social security system in India. And so when a young girl gets married, she goes and lives with her husband. And it's from that point, she takes care of her in-laws. And so families want to have a son so that they know that they'll be cared for in their old age. Yeah. And so for those reasons, uh, there's an old Hindi, uh, Hindi language saying that having a girl is like watering your neighbor's garden. Mm. And you just see that people want sons for those reasons and others, yeah. and they don't want daughters because not only are they going to lose their daughter at some point to go take care of her in-laws, but then they're going to lose their money too right. to get her married. So for those reasons, that those are the two biggest reasons why there is this son preference. And so girls are aborting mm-hmm. because they're girls. Families are thinking down the line, I'm going to have to pay for her to get married. I'm going to lose her. And I really want a son. Mm-hmm. And there is also uh, really superstition. And so you, you talk about the movie, it's a girl. There's superstition in some of Indian culture in, in the amongst the poor, frankly, and we learned about this just anecdotally, that if you have a girl and you kill her when she's born, that you will have a son next. Oh. And so you talked about, and if you show that trailer or if your audience ultimately sees that movie, they'll see a woman who talks about killing a number of her daughters. Yeah. And part of the reason why she did that is because she wants a son and then you kill baby after baby after baby in hopes that, and, and with that superstition in your mind, like, oh, I'm, I'll have a boy next. Mm-hmm. And so it's just very, in some ways accepted and it's so wrong, right? This is right. so wrong. Well- what surprised me the most in watching that documentary was that birth, that woman, that older woman who had strangled her seven baby girls. It didn't seem like there was any emotion in her face. Like she didn't seem concerned or bothered or have any regret. That, that to me was the most shocking part of it. Sure. And it's just Absolutely. so accepted that you just, you just do it. Right. It just seems so, so cultural. Mm-hmm. We have a story that we tell, really, this is how Invisible Girl Project got started. Okay. My husband was in, we had heard that there was something called female infanticide, which is the killing of a, a baby girl when she's born just because she's female. And we were living in India at the time. I had lived in India all of 2008 and then came back to the United States and, and married my husband, Brad, and uh, in Indianapolis. And then we over he took a sabbatical from his work and came over and our first year of marriage was in India uh, in 2009 and I was working for a large human rights organization helping to rescue people from slavery at the time mm-hmm. and we had heard about female infanticide just from we had some friends who had done mission trips to India and they had heard about these things going on in the village villages and we just like how could this be real 
So Brad and I were married for three weeks. Here we are on the ground in India and Brad goes to a remote village with some friends of ours. He had been doing medical camps for the poor. He had started doing that kind of work. And he's in a village where the boys outnumber the girls eight to one. Wow. He sees all these little boys running around and no little girls. And they mm -hmm. were very open with Brad in this village about girls are just not wanted. And here you are South, deep South India. They probably never met a Westerner before. And so they're just, they're just honest with him. They in fact pointed out this little old grandmother looking yeah. woman. And she was the quote unquote baby killer of the village when she was the midwife. And so when a baby girl was born, she would take this girl and just do away with her. <sighs> and Brad met a young woman named Asha in this village. And Asha was the 12th born daughter to her parents. In hopes of having a son, her mother got pregnant year after year after year, would have a healthy pregnancy, deliver a healthy baby girl. And likely, I, I imagine this in my head, I, just having um, the joys, right? You're, you're first pregnant and, and you feel your baby move and um, or, or you're sick, you know, just experiencing what women experience when, they, when they're pregnant and hoping that whole time that it's a boy and then she delivered a baby girl and for her firstborn daughter her second her third her fourth up to 11 baby girls asha's parents murdered their own daughters 11. it just even doesn't see, seem statistically possible right, right to have that many in a row yeah and so we think like they likely believed that they were, you know, that they'll never have a son. And so they let Asha live, but Brad met Asha. She was a 21 year old woman and she knew her whole life that she was unwanted. She knew she was unwanted yeah. and that her, her parents wanted a son. And so she told Brad her story. When Brad heard her story, he, he traveled back to our apartment in the big city and I just remember sitting across our kitchen table from my husband. Here we are again, newlyweds. Like we've just been married a few weeks and he has tears coming down his face. He's like, this is real, Jill. This is real. And I remember tears coming down my cheeks and just saying, we have to do something about this. We had no idea we were going to start Invisible Girl Project, but we uh, felt that we could not just sit idly by and do nothing. Once we knew that this was real, we were compelled to take action. Yeah. And that's really how Invisible Girl Project was birthed. Oh, wow. But you see like this does happen, baby girl after baby girl after baby girl being discriminated to, to the point of death and mm -hmm. discriminated against. So it's real. Because girls are so unwanted in India, there is even a practice of naming girls unwanted. Mm -hmm. So, can you imagine, Dana, your whole life saying, oh, hello, like playing with little kids on the playground from the time you're three, four can start talking. Well, what's your name? Unwanted. To me, that's just not, it, I can't fathom. On your birth certificate, it says unwanted McElgay, right? It says, I just can't imagine, but this is happening because girls are so unwanted, their parents are naming them that. Yeah. And so we have a little video that we show and the young girls are speaking Marathi. And it, it is, it's almost, you talked before about just emotions and, and it's almost like the girls are so used to being called unwanted that you don't see this, this great emotion that you might expect where mm -hmm. they're teary or they're so upset because their name is unwanted. It's just like, yeah, my name's unwanted. Yeah, girls should not live. 
Yeah, it's so tragic to me that even they am saying themselves, no, we shouldn't be born. You know, how does that affect them the rest of their lives to go through in life feeling unwanted? Of course, they're not going to be able to become much if, if they have that belief about them. That's right. And so, yes, with with knowing that girls are, I mean, actually named unwanted. Can you imagine? I, I just can't fathom it. And you, um, you see these little precious girls who just know that they're so unwanted. Their parents named them that and they just have no hope. They have no hope, mm-hmm. but this is a reality. And this is where, um, you know, I, with our two daughters, we want our daughters to know about this from the time that they're, that they're young. And, we want them to know that this is a reality um, and that they can be part of helping make a difference in this world. Yeah. yeah, I think that's important. Don't you go into these villages where there are girls named unwanted and do like a naming ceremony? Is that part of something that IGP does? No, IGP does not. We don't. Okay. Yeah. Okay. We, we, they, okay. I'll give you a little clip if you want to. So actually there was a naming ceremony, a renaming ceremony. Mm-hmm this state and the government. So we talk about the political will, like the government really believing there should be change. We see that there is this political will for change. Mm. And it was actually a government uh, plan. It was what the government did, went into these villages and did renaming ceremonies for girls to give them a a name, a name. So there is hope. That's inspiring, that's hopeful. We've talked about the prevalence of female gendercide in India. What if these girls are allowed to live? What is the likelihood that they will survive? Mm-hmm. So we see that there is a discrimination then against girls that continues throughout their lives. And mm-hmm. statistics show that one in four girls in India do not live, does not live past puberty. Mm-hmm. And we know stories of little girls who, if they have a brother, uh, the brother's the first one who gets to eat. The mm-hmm. brother's the one who is sent to school. Girls are neglected to the mm-hmm. point uh, of malnutrition and or, or they're abandoned just because they're girls. And so we see, particularly in India, there are so many reasons why India has now 63 million girls and women who are missing from its population and it's due to female gender side. And that's a statistic from the Indian government. Uh, the India Economic Survey shows that there are 63 million girls and women who are missing from its population because of the sun preference mm-hmm. and female gender side, which plays out. Now we talked about female feticide, female infanticide, mm-hmm. neglect, deadly neglect. And then also we see trafficking. We see young yeah. girls who are trafficked as child brides from the age of, of 10, 11, 12 uh, to villages. There's a village called Devra and it has no women in this village. So there are all these men because mm-hmm. the girls have been systematically killed for years. And so these men have no one to marry in the village. Yeah. And so young girls will be trafficked from other parts of India or from other countries to serve as brides for these men, these strangers who then, you know, is it really their choice to be married to this man? No, who's probably much older. We heard, we've heard stories about uh, young girls who are forced to marry a man and then his brother so that the brother can have a, a bride also. So it is this discrimination, we keep coming back to that word, it truly is a deadly discrimination against girls that has played out in so many ways yeah. in Indian culture uh, that 
has led to a terrible chasm in the population. There are 37 million more men than women in India. And so that's like 37 million. So I always try to put this in perspective. Uh, If you say 37 million, for us, it's just like this huge number. If you take like the population of the state of North Carolina, uh, the population of the state of New York, and say Oregon. I know that those three for sure like mm. add up to a little bit less than 37 million. Can you imagine if there were only men living in those three states? That is what this is equated to. And can you imagine the effects of that, of only this many more men than women? So we see then, instead of changing and recognizing, oh, there's a problem and we really need to fix this in our culture and having a social demand for change, we see this is continuing. It's like a snowball that continues. And and you would think that there would be like, wait, there are 37 million who will never have a, men who will never have a bride, never have a a woman to marry, but they they don't think of it that way. And I don't want to say they, it's, there are a lot of men who don't think of it this way. Mm -hmm. A lot of families who don't, but there are wonderful Indians on the ground who recognize the problem and who are working to change it within their culture. Yeah. That, that to me was the highlight of the documentary is seeing these, these people that were stepping up and they were, they were not accepting the culture or the traditions of their fathers, their families, but they were making a difference in, you know, there were a few stories in India and, and the documentary also talks about what's happening in China. And so some stories in China that just really touched my heart. Like I loved hearing of mm. that's where it change it happens is when one person is willing to see things differently or connect to a higher truth and willing to step out and, and risk everything, have that courage to risk everything to make a difference. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. And you see in the movie, um, Mithu Karana, mm-hmm. who really, really in many ways gave her life. She's, yeah. she's no longer with us. She's passed. Right. And she really gave her life to stand up for her twin daughters in India, mm-hmm. um, fought the legal system and, and to the point of complete exhaustion. And she ultimately um, passed of an illness and mm-hmm. You know, premature young age, but this was something, and I've met Mitsu in person and her family, and it was something that she was passionate about. And she wanted to lock arms with us at Invisible Girl Project to say, I support the work that you do Mm -hmm. because I see that you guys are on the ground with Indians working to combat this issue within my culture. And there are so Mm -hmm. many wonderful, amazing Indians who are really working to Mm -hmm. make that change in their culture. So it's interesting in India, like there, it's, there's a law that's outlawed dowry, right? Since the 1960s. Correct. What, what are the other laws that that are on the, the books? There are absolutely fantastic laws that are in place. They just need to be enforced. We mm-hmm. believe the political will is there. You see Prime Minister Modi, he started a campaign called Save the Girl, Educate the Girl. Mm-hmm. And it, we really work in conjunction with this in, in very like-minded, like we need to save girls' lives and we want, it, we want them educated. The political will exists. There is the PCP NDT Act. In watching the movie, It's a Girl, you'll see them talk about this law that really, I mean, it makes sex-selective abortion illegal. And it, it actually prevents couples from going to have an ultrasound and finding out the gender of their baby. Mm-hmm. And so I remember when I was pregnant with our daughter uh, over 10 years ago here in the United States, we had already lived in India and our friends in India who are like family to us now said, oh, you know, they were so excited that I was going to have our first baby. And are you going to find out whether you're having a boy or girl? Or are you going to do it the Indian way? 
<laughs> and we actually did it the Indian we, we mm. did it quote unquote Indian way we we didn't find out whether we were having a boy or a girl for our first mm. uh but yes you're not allowed to even know if you're having a boy or girl and so there's there's an understanding actually there's a presumption in this law even that families coerce the pregnant woman to go illegally have an mm -hmm. ultrasound and it's illegal to find out the gender. And what happens is people will bribe the ultrasound technicians. Yeah. And so they'll find out that they're having a, a baby girl at, you know, 18, 20 weeks, and then they'll go have an abortion. But the laws are in place. There, there's the Medical uh, Termination of Pregnancy Act that makes abortion for that reason illegal. Mm -hmm. so we know that that's illegal. And of course, female infanticide is illegal because it's the murdering of another human being. being. And so the Indian Penal Code prohibits that, but these laws need to be enforced. And yeah. what we have seen in our work at Invisible Girl Project with our Indian staff on the ground is that many people just don't even, government officials, police officers need to just learn the law more and have the encouragement to pursue these laws to justice. Uh, so what we do on the ground at Invisible Girl Project is we train, we train officials, we train people from the okay. Child Welfare Committee in India, which is similar to like Child Protective Services here in the United States. We train them on child marriage, on neglect. We train them on the laws that are in place to protect girls. And we want to work hand in hand with the government. If we can train government officials, if we can come alongside them so that they are working from within their culture to enforce this political will and, get, and really get that social demand for change, that deterrent, mm -hmm. uh, we believe that's really important. Yeah. So you're working kind of from the top down, but also from the bottom up with those yeah. individuals as well. I'd love to hear some stories about who you've been able to reach and girls sure. you've been able to save. Sure. So, um, so we just knew, like I told you a little bit about the story of how we started Invisible Girl Project. We didn't know, again, this was not on our radar really that we were going to start IGP. Mm. It's just something that we felt God really plop in our lap. I'm such a justice-minded person. I'm a former prosecuting attorney here okay. in the United States. And, and then I was a criminal defense attorney for children and just have a heart for children and, and for justice. I am the classic Enneagram for anybody who knows Enneagram personality types. I'm a classic Enneagram eight. I just am so justice-minded. And so we started Invisible Girl Project just because it was something, again, like God really stirred in our hearts. And so at, at the end of 2009, we came back from India to the United States. I got pregnant with our first baby girl and we started IGP. This is actually our 10 year anniversary um, this year, 2021. Uh, we became a 501c3 nonprofit organization in July of 2011. And our mission is to save girls' lives to end female gender side. Mm -hmm. And so what, again, what we've seen in India is we have to reach families on all of these issues on sex selective abortion, on female infanticide, on child marriage, on neglect. Mm -hmm. We want to save their daughters' lives. And we want to counsel these families and tell them that girls are inherently valuable. Exactly. And so what we do, so I talked a little bit about how we work with officials to help stop this problem, but we do, we have social workers on the ground through what we call our RICE program, which is rescue, intervention, care and counseling and education and empowerment, R-I-C-E. And RICE is such a source of like a staple food in India, right? It's, it's a source of life. And so we, um, through our RICE program, are helping to give life to little girls, individual 
girls in India. And we do this for a number of reasons. First of all, we believe that every life is inherently valuable. Invisible Girl Project's history over the past 10 years through our Indian partners on the ground who we support financially and who we support through strategic planning and organization and data collection, we support them to go rescue these little girls. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've been able to rescue over 600 little girls at this point from being killed or That's being amazing. trafficked. We go upstream, we prevent them from being married off as child brides or sent into brothels. And again, mm -hmm. these are Indians who are doing this work. It's not Jill and Brad from the United States mm -hmm. doing this work. That's always been super important to us. We have such a love for India and we were really, when we lived there that year, we were asked alongside and help them. And so we said, yes, of course we want to do whatever we can. And so it was important to us from the very beginning that we not be those Westerners that come into India and say, you have a problem and we are here to fix it. Right. That was, we wanted to be so sensitive from the beginning and not do that. And so mm -hmm. we work with Indians on the ground, saving little girls lives. And Again, there are fantastic, phenomenal Indian people who are, who are doing great work to save girls. Just last year, through our Indian partners and through our Indian staff on the ground, even during COVID, we were able to rescue 153 mm. little girls from being killed or trafficked. And mm. we don't stop at rescue. So what we do is... Uh, there are many organizations that will, will save a little girl's life, but we, we go beyond that. We say, okay, we see in India specifically that we want a little girl to live and survive birth, but we want her to thrive as well. Because we know that her life is still in danger. We want her to hit puberty. We want her not to get married at an early age. We want her to go on to be educated and go to college. And so we rescue little girls and then we support them. Uh, we have a child sponsorship program that we support little girls through. We provide their needs, putting them in, in a safe place, whether it's with their families who we've counseled or in a safe home. And we provide them education and in, in really caring for them and teaching them their inher inherent value mm -hmm. so that they can become those change agents within India to help change that really cultural preference for sons. Mm -hmm. We want them to stand up and say no. We will support our sisters. We are going to support our daughters. Yeah. You change that one generation and it's going to ripple, have that ripple effect. That's something that we believe in big ocean women, that the, the model of powerful impact that we change ourselves, then we can change our family and it ripples out into the community and into the rest of the world. That's right. That is what we really model our work on. Knowing that these over 600 girls at this point can make changes and it does begin yeah. in their family, right? It yeah. begins in their family. Yeah. And he, there's a young young woman named Kieran uh, in an, a North Indian village who we have supported. She was really the first girl in her whole village that was allowed to attend mm -hmm. school. And uh, her, her parents were, were great and, and really worked with social workers up, up in North India and Bihar to send Kieran to school and, and her family ended up really empowering her. So she went on to, got her education was the first girl to really graduate from high school in her whole village. Mm. And she um, ultimately got a, a good job. She makes more money now than anybody else in her whole village, even the men. Really? And so it does make an impact. Like her family ultimately championing her, allowing her to go to school really changed her family. And then it does, has changed the villagers because they're like, well, 
I want that for my daughter now too. Mm-hmm. So we call it the Kieran effect. It's the Kieran effect. It, like if, if you start small, it does have a, a ripple effect. And so that whole village now has seen, wait, girls aren't a liability. Yeah. They, they do have potential. They, they are valuable. That's amazing. That's an incredible story. So another thing that we believe in Big Ocean is that for change to happen, there has to be this united effort between women and men. It can't just be the women going out and saying this needs to change, but that even, you know, more powerful than that, it would be, you know, the father saying, Hey, my daughter is valuable. Yes. That a father's belief about his daughter's worth has a greater impact than, than the policies and the, the changes that are happening at a political level, that if it starts there, it's going to have that ripple effect. We agree with that too. We agree that men and women need to come together and work to save girls' lives. That mm-hmm. this has to stop now because mm-hmm. again, we see there are 37 million more men than women in India's population. So this is affecting the men too. And so over the course of our history, we work with families. We, we get into the family. So I'll tell you a story about, um, about this family. So there was uh, a young woman named Priyanka and she uh, lived in South India with her husband. She lived with, in, with her in-laws as well. And she got pregnant. Actually, she was pregnant with twins. And throughout her pregnancy, Priyanka's mother-in-law especially was putting pressure on Priyanka's husband and on Priyanka saying, Priyanka needs to give birth to a boy. As if she has any choice, right? Mm-hmm. As if this is up to her at all. And so when Priyanka ultimately delivered twin baby girls, she was in the hospital and Priyanka's mother-in-law came to her and whispered in her ear, you need to let one live, choose which one will live and kill the other one or let the other one die. Just don't feed the other one. Choose which one will live. And if you don't, don't you dare come home. You have no place to live. So here Priyanka is in the hospital with these twin baby girls having to choose between what, what do I do? I have no way to even support or care for my little girls because that was my home. And now I'm being told that I'm not welcome back there. And through our work at Invisible Girl Project, our social workers had met Priyanka. They were there with her. So she wasn't, she was alone and feeling awful in, in the hospital, but our social workers came and they stood alongside her and said, Priyanka, we're here to support you and your baby girls. Then in addition, our social workers started working with Priyanka's husband and counseling him on the inherent value of his daughters. We supported Priyanka knowing that we can, we have some microfinance opportunities that we we help women so that they can live independently. We told Priyanka, we will help you buy a cow. We do a cow loan program. We've given out over 36 cows, I believe, in India and through this microfinance opportunity so that she could sell the milk from this cow because she, she wasn't educated. She didn't have a way to provide for her daughters so that she could live independently and support her daughter. So we really want to empower the women. But we also, again, going back to the man, the husband, Priyanka's husband, our social worker started counseling him. And I can tell you, he ultimately left his family's home. Mm. He reunited with his wife and his baby girls. And so it's a real success story of what can happen. And you have now Priyanka's husband supporting his his daughters and recognizing their value. But you're right. We have to teach the men. And ultimately through our strategic plan, what we want And again, we're just a young organization. We're pretty small, Uh, but we want to get into schools and teach boys from the time that they are little, no matter what you hear in your home, girls are valuable. If your sister is home and she's not able to go to school and you're here, 
and, and no matter what your family's told you, we want you to know your sister is valuable. You should not take dowry someday. You should want to have daughters. Like this is, we want to change it from the time that they are young. And we're, we're looking to do that. That's part of our bigger strategic plan. But any opportunity we get to talk to boys, mm-hmm. to students, to, to men, we are going to take that opportunity. I have been in villages where I've had groups of men and women around me. And I just basically preach at them saying, <laughs> you know, in our, in our Indian friends are translating mm-hmm. and they're saying the same thing. And, and just, we work to come together to teach these villages, to teach families that girls are valuable and should not be perceived as liabilities. Yeah. Their inherent value needs to be recognized. That's where it all starts, right? If that value was recognized, there would never be this objectification and commodification of women. You know, it's when she becomes an object or becomes a product that she's easily disposed of. You know, she's a means for an income. She's a means for posterity, but she can be easily disposed of if she's not producing the way that she's expected Mm -hmm. to. And so I think you're absolutely right. We have to go back to that inherent worth. Mm-hmm. And there's something that, uh, what is her name at the end of it's a girl. Is it Rita? Rita Banerjee. Yeah. Something that she says about life should never be justified. You know, you don't say, oh, well, why are we killing the women? They're the ones that are having the baby. She's like, no, that's so do we kill the women that don't want to have babies? Right. You know, you, you switch that around like, well, wait a minute then. Oh, don't kill women because they're beautiful. Well, so do you kill the women that aren't beautiful? Right. Like if you have to make a justification, then it's easy to make a flip. And so we have to go back to just life is life, no matter who you are. And you're entitled to that. That is one of the most basic human rights. That's right. That's right. And as a person of faith myself, mm-hmm. that my faith really is what motivates Brad and me to do this work and mm-hmm. believing that, um, you know, each person is created and created in God's image yeah. and um, boy or girl, like their lives are valuable because God is choosing to create that person. Exactly. I usually try and make it to India about once a year. And again, we have wonderful Indian staff who are on the ground working with our partners. I love to just get over there and and be with my, what I say is my India family and visit Mm -hmm. them and just travel around and, and see the work of our different partners. And so just last year, uh, because of COVID, I haven't been able to go for a little bit over a year now, but I was there in January of 2020. And I really uh, experienced in this village what I believe is, it, it just hits you across the face sometimes, like this is why we do what we do. And so um, I'm gonna share with you a video about uh, a young a baby girl named Sharona. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was with one of our partners in South India and we walked into this village, which uh, I've met these people a number of times now. And these women in this village have become, I consider them my friends. And so I walk in the village. I haven't seen them for a year. I'm so excited to see these women and they start gathering around me and I see the little girls come and it's just like such joy just to get to see these lives and these women that are now empowered and um, again, who are my friends. And so I hadn't seen them. This is January, 2020. And, and I walk into this village and these women are gathered around me and we're greeting each other. And before lives change, of course, we're hugging each other. And uh, at some point, one of the women brings forward a woman named Adasha. She was an older woman and I had never met her before. She was actually new to this village. 
she had family that lived in this village. And so she and her husband who were, were older uh, moved to this village. But again, she was new, so I hadn't met her. And so one of my friends brought her forward and said, I want you to meet Adasha. Can you please help her? Adasha was holding a baby, a precious baby girl named Sharona. Sharona was just one year old and she had just had her birthday. And uh, Adasha wanted to share with me her story. And it's a heartbreaking story and you'll see it on this video. But Adasha, um, her daughter, knew that when she was pregnant the year before that her husband wanted a boy. And throughout the, her pregnancy, her husband was abusive and told her she better give him a son. And then when baby Sharona was born, the husband just berated his wife all the more. And at some point, Adasha's daughter took her own life because she couldn't handle the abuse anymore. And so baby Sharona was orphaned. Uh, her, her father then abandoned her and all she had was her grandmother. And so Adasha wanted everyone here in the United States really to hear her family story, to know that this is a reality in her culture, to know that it's so overwhelming that her daughter took her own life. And just two weeks before I had met Adasha and baby Sharona, Someone had come into that village and offered to buy Sharona. A trafficker had come in and offered to buy Sharona from Adasha. And here you have Adasha, she, she doesn't have anything. Like she's a daily wage laborer, maybe makes a dollar a day out in the fields. And so she has really no way of providing for baby Sharona, but she still told this trafficker, no, I'm gonna protect my granddaughter. And so we've been able since that time to come alongside Adasha and her family and to care for baby Sharona in this village where there are other women who are fantastic and also empowering and championing Adasha. And so I'm excited to share that story with you. Yeah, I'm excited to share that as well. I. I hope you don't mind me giving you this compliment, but as Big Ocean Women, we believe that every woman who has the best interest of the rising generation at heart and willingly gives of herself to nourish and protect the rising generation is a mother to those people. And so with that definition of mind, Jill, I see you as a mother to, to those children in India. And I think, you know, just as Mother Teresa focused on and nurtured those individuals, that's something that you and your organization are doing for those women and those girls in India. I've watched, you know, your Instagram posts and how you, how you focus on those individual stories and you bring to light and you, you bring value to those girls. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's inspiring. I you want to know. Make, you're making yeah. me cry. <laughs> I know, you started crying and that made me emotional. Yeah, uh, I, I, I just, I love it. I love what you're doing and I want to know, you know, what can we share with our listeners? What can we how can we as individuals or as cottages in our big ocean community get involved? What can we do? Uh, well, thank you, first of all. That's just so humbling. That's really humbling to me. I always, I mean, for the past 10 years, I've actually, um, having our own two daughters, have dreamed about having an Indian daughter, frankly. We would love to adopt it from point from India. And then I say, well, IGP in some ways is like a third child. It's like yeah. so much work. There's like no way that I can I mean, so just for you to say that and for you to put that that mindset for me that these and I do, I love our girls. 
I love our girls so much that, and I've gotten to know them, so many of them and know them by name, like Momi, who I met Mm -hmm. over uh, 10 years ago. And I've watched Momi grow up and now she's a nurse. We were able to help send her to college and she's Mm -hmm. a nurse now at a prominent hospital in a big city. And uh, just, just, and I love Momi, you know, I saw, met her when she was little and just to see her grow up. That's how I feel about, about our girls. And um, so thank you for saying that's really yeah. super uh, <laughs> encouraging and humbling. And so, yeah, I, I would say to the, to big ocean women, to the cottages, you have an opportunity. You know, when I heard about this issue 12 years ago, uh, Brad and I could have easily just said, this is too overwhelming. You know, we talked about how it can be so overwhelming hearing these numbers and um, it can be so heartbreaking that we can just turn a blind eye in so many ways Mm -hmm. because it's distant. It's over on the other side of the globe, but we were compelled to take action. And I would just encourage your cottages to take action. Now that you know that this is happening, you can take a step forward and come alongside Invisible Girl Project to help us make a difference. We believe the more people that know about it in the Western world, we can help make a difference in India by coming alongside our Indian friends, our Indian partners to rescue more girls, to save more lives, to change that cultural belief that girls are liabilities. And we want to do that. And so I would ask, first of all, super easy step, get on your iPhone now or your, your Android and look up Invisible Girl Projects. Mm-hmm. Look us up, uh, begin, get on our mailing list, our email list. We send out a monthly newsletter with stories from the field or just updates on what we're doing on IGP. You can sign up for that through our website, invisiblegirlproject.org. We're on Facebook and on Instagram, posting on social media. And that's at, and it's just one word, Invisible Girl Project. We ask people to follow us. And then the next step in that is we ask people to become what we call our brand ambassadors. Mm-hmm. You see a story on Instagram or on Facebook, repost it. Because if each one of us reaches another 10 people who didn't know about this issue before, we can make even a bigger impact. We ask people to come alongside us that way. It's a super easy way to raise awareness about this issue. And again, not turn a blind eye. And so, and then we, we would appreciate any kind of support we can get um, through. You can write letters to our girls. Mm-hmm. You can invite me to come speak to groups. Um, we have speakers through Invisible Girl Project. I love being able to travel around the U.S. And, and share this. And of course, during COVID, it just hasn't happened this year. So thank you for giving me this opportunity mm-hmm. on your podcast to share about Invisible Girl Project. I love opportunities to speak about it. We, you know, you know I'll Zoom or, or come visit. Um, and we ask for uh, financial support as well. And so if people want to uh, use their resources, we can tell you that these resources are going for good. Little girls' lives are being saved. And we are hoping and working hard to make that change in India. So we ask that you come alongside us in that way. Perfect. Thank you. I, I yeah, I, I encourage everyone to get involved in some way to do something. I mean, we can have an impact, even if it is small, um, we can make a difference. So thank you. Thank you so much for joining us, Jill. It's been such a pleasure. You're a delight to be with and it's inspiring to hear your stories and the success that you're having and the difference you really are making. Thank you, Dana. I'm so glad to be here with you and just thank you for hearing about our story three years ago (laughs) and just still pursuing um, 
what is the truth, what's mm-hmm. going on in India and wanting to share and raise awareness about it, but also showing again that there is hope. There are little lives that are being saved and changed, and there are wonderful Indians who are making an impact on their culture. So thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. And I just want to encourage everybody to get on and watch It's a Girl. You can find it on Amazon Prime. You can watch it on a number of different platforms online. It's really informative. It's well done. And there are some beautiful stories that we didn't get time to talk about here. You'll also learn more about what's happening in China, specifically with their policies and how oh, I don't even know what the word is. Like they, they're they just so strict about enforcing them that you'll hear some really tragic things, but also some beautiful stories and some hope. So I encourage everybody to go and watch that as well. I do too. And, and there is a misnomer it, that China has done away with the one child policy because it has a two child policy now, but that's just not true. And mm-hmm. so there are still women who are being forced out of their homes and taken to clinics where they're given an abortion mm-hmm. and they don't want this. And so this issue is really important in China as well. And I mm-hmm. ask that you, you look up uh, an organization. I have a, a dear friend, Reggie Littlejohn. She's in the mm-hmm. movie. Uh, she's with Women's Rights Without Frontiers, and she does this work in China. You have been listening to Currents, a podcast of Big Ocean Women. You can find us at BigOceanWomen.org, on Instagram, and on Facebook. If you're interested in joining or starting a cottage, reach out to us on any of these platforms, and we'll get you connected. Our guest today has been Jill McAlier, founder of Invisible Girl Project. We invite you now to go watch the two video clips mentioned in our discussion, the beautiful video of Sharona's story and the tender video clip of the girls named Unwanted. You can find them on our website, again, BigOceanWomen.org. And please, add the documentary It's a Girl to your watch list. Then choose something you can do to help save girls' lives. Join us again for an in-depth discussion about interesting ideas and fascinating people who are making a difference in their communities. Thanks for being here today.